2: spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting.
0: Any one of our human capacities, if unused out of fear or shame leaves a small hole in the fabric of our self-esteem. Gloria Steinem. I love that quote. It's featured in a beautiful book we're gonna talk about today. Guess what pops up on Google when you enter the words feeling not, you know how Google autofills and gives you options? One of the most popular ends to that phrase, feeling not enough, feeling not good enough. A lot of people are searching for answers to that question, how can I feel? good enough. Have you ever felt that way? Have you felt that way often or maybe perpetually? If so, you are far from alone, and you can move past those feelings, paving the way for so many benefits. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and we are going to chat about this topic with an expert who knows this journey very well. Then later, Dr. Megan Fleming will weigh in on a question from a listener. It's a wonderful question on sex-positive parenting. First, I'm so pleased to welcome Dr. Barbara Jaffe to the show. Barbara is an award-winning English professor at El Camino College, California, a fellow in UCLA's Department of Education, and a regular contributor to Psychology Today and InnerSelf.com. Her book, When Will I Be Good Enough? A Replacement Child's Journey to Healing is one I think we can all really learn from. Thank you so much for joining me, Barbara.
1: Thank you so much for having me, August. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I have to ask you first, for those who've not heard this term, because I hadn't before being introduced to your work, what is a replacement child?
1: Well, in the literal sense, it is a child that is born into a family after a sibling died. And uh, most of the time, the family had been complete, was not expecting to have another child, but then sadly the child died, and then the child, another child is born to replace that child.
0: And you... Consider yourself a replacement child. Tell us how you identify with the term.
1: I am a replacement child, but growing up, I never thought of myself as that. But I began to think that something was a little bit off when my mom would often say, I only wanted two children, and if Jeffrey had lived, you wouldn't have been born. So I got the idea that I was there kind of uh, as an afterthought, but definitely wanted, and I know I was loved. But growing up, there are characteristics of a replacement child, and again, I didn't label myself as such, but the perfectionism, uh, the drive to make other people happy, extreme people-pleasing, extreme anxiety, a lot of these qualities many people have. That's true. Um, I made it my life's mission, mission from a very early age to make my mother happy. I sensed that I um, there was something off. She was very depressed. And she never really recovered from uh, my brother's death. And I felt it my my goal in life to make her happy.
0: It's fascinating to me that you had a very different kind of dynamic with your father and your mother. And it seems part of the reason for that was that her doctor actually suggested she have another child soon after your brother died.
1: Yes. So she was lying in bed, grief stricken, very understandably so. And it was in the early 1950s and the doctor paid a house call and she was uncontrollably crying and he literally slapped her across the face and said, move on, get over it and have another one. So how could anyone really get over it? I don't know. But four months later, I was conceived and that began my journey.
0: Could you give us an example or two of the ways in which you tried to please your mother?
1: Oh, I literally remember um, standing at the edge of her bed. She spent many days in bed. And I would dance and sing and do skits and massage her feet until she said it was enough. I really, I really literally tried to make her happy. And um, in some ways it was Wonderful in that I was the center of attention as she was looking at me. But in other respects, I see now as an adult myself, as a parent, as a grandparent, that's not a child's mission in life to make a parent happy and fulfilled.
0: That's a big responsibility. Very big. Did you feel that you were, were making her happy?
1: I think it was, um, very tentative and sporadic. Um, but I never stopped trying. Whereas my older brother, who obviously was there first in the family, and maybe because of personality, he could just walk into the room and my mother would just smile. And I think that there was that difference there because I came as a reminder, even though, you know, I know she loved me and wanted me, and she was happy that it was a girl after two sons. Um, It was a conditional kind of love.
0: And did it affect?
1: this dynamic and your wanting to please, did it affect your uh, academic career and kind of your development early on? It affected pretty much every area of my life. And I, I think that the beginning to see the effects was on my eating disorder, which I I got early on, probably by the time I was 10 or 11, when my mother looked at me and didn't want me to be a chubby little girl because she knew that I would grow into a chubby adult and probably wanted my life to be easier, and she told me to watch it. She never said those things to my brother, but um, I learned very early to read between the lines and that watching it meant that I was fat, So initially, I started to watch it and lost some weight and got a lot of positive comments. And then it spiraled out of control into anorexia. Mm. So I think that was the earliest where I could say that I realized that I didn't have any control over my young life. But... I could control what I put in my mouth and what I chose not to. And that became a power struggle with my mother to the point that she wanted me to eat and that I didn't. And so I was getting that attention, even though it was negative. I was getting uh, the attention.
0: And as an eating disorder survivor myself, I know that any feedback, as you said, concern over your eating habits or your physicality can come across as attention and compliments. And sadly, we are praised for being undernourished
1: in our culture. There's a lot of pressure a lot and that has followed me my entire life. I can manage it, but it's always there either on the back burner or the front burner depending on what kind of stress I'm under. And um I'm I'm very aware of it and it was a dance that my mother and I did until she passed away, telling me to eat and then me not wanting to. And here wow. I am an adult, you know.
0: Wow. So did you were you able to find healing from the eating disorder?
1: somewhat, I can manage it. I can look normal on the outside, but it's always there. Mm. And I just really take one day at a time and do the best I can with it. Yeah. But the other areas of my life that um, I think were affected of feeling not good enough were um, as a young wife, um, as a mother, certainly as a mother, I felt that when my kids behaved, it was in spite of me. And, because- and when they when they didn't behave, it was because of me. Mm. So I took responsibility for everything. And I put so much pressure on myself when being good enough would have been just fine. So
0: how did that affect your relationship with your children?
1: I have a very good relationship with my three sons. I feel very close to them. And I know that they feel close to me. I think so much of Of what I experienced and wrote about in the book was an internal dialogue that I had and they were not privy to it. One thing I do say, I don't believe in regrets because I think that's living in the past, but I do say if I could do it all over again as a young mother, um, I would have a, an identity. Because my mother took up so much space in the house and in the room, I chose to require no needs and have no needs and and not share any of my wants, likes, dislikes with my children. So consequently, they see me um, on one hand in a positive way that I'm very independent, that I don't need anything. And on the other hand, I'm not that the real person that has issues and, and problems mm-hmm. that it would be okay for them to know. And that is a legacy, sadly, that I passed on.
0: Interesting. And such an important thing to share. I, I so appreciate your your honesty. When did you start to realize that you, was it finding out what this term was or that you actually needed to kind of turn things around and find some healing?
1: I've actually spent most of my life on this journey. Um, And I have a chapter in my book called uh, About Education Setting Me Free. That was the one area of my life that I created for myself. Um, My family was not educated. Um, I was, um, besides high school, and when I went away to college, I was on a quest um, for more than just academics. So I, I began that at search um, because I knew that the pieces of myself were just a little off in the sense that I looked okay from the outside but internally I felt that I had to work so much harder than others it was almost like I was in quicksand or walking or swimming upstream and I didn't share that with a lot of people but it seemed so effortless for so many so um, I was on that quest But in terms of seeing myself as a replacement child, I really did not even think about that term until I was almost finished with the book. I felt second best in many things in my life. But in terms of replacement, fortunately, I wrote the book and then Googled the replacement child. And there it was. There's... um, a Replacement Child Syndrome. There's a recent book that was written. I have a chapter in that book. Was, it's on replacement children um, by Dr. Brenner. There is uh, the first book written um, by Judy Mundell called Replacement Child, and, and it's about her journey as a replacement child. But I had not really thought of myself in in that term and and it's just as well because I, I don't feel like I need to label myself, but all of the qualities fit, and I thought, wow, that is amazing that is fascinating. I love that writing the book led you to even more
0: self awareness and a community of people who may be feeling quite alone or you know have a need to connect with other people or learn from others who've gone through this that's that's really really interesting um, when did you start to uh, – so you realize that you – do you feel like you have the syndrome?
1: Well, I have the qualities of, of, of that. As I had mentioned, the uh, um, some of the anxiety I've worked through, the people pleasing, the perfectionism, but as I say in my book, I think that so many of us have those issues. That you don't mm-hmm. have to be a replacement child. I think that sometimes just, I mean, if we have an ill sibling in the family where one is getting more attention for whatever reason, or maybe in a blended family with with stepchildren or half children, there's a variety of or a family with alcoholic parents. A lot of those dynamics speak to the same kinds of issues that I have.
0: Yeah. Do you associate with the term at all, without going into labels, I'm the same way, but imposter syndrome? Because we hear a lot about that lately. I've always
1: felt that way. Even I've had a wonderful academic career. Um, I sometimes have these (laughs) visions that somebody's going to come into the classroom and say, no, you shouldn't be here. (laughs) Oh, wow. And that is just so funny um, that you say that because, yes, that um, I'm going to be found out.
0: That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. And I just thought of this now that – because I respect you so much from, you know, your book and your academic career and everything that you do, I had some butterflies about, will I be good enough about this? And I thought it is a struggle that no matter what we do, if you're a really, even just like really caring person who wants to succeed, we live in a culture too, that, there's a lot of pressure on like performance and you know being s- certain kinds of successful, you know. So I do think a lot of people can learn from this. What is some advice you offer to people if somebody's really struggling in this way, to to start to feel that they are enough? Have you developed habits or practices that have been helpful?
1: Um, I have um, one of the chapters in my book at the end deals with some of the exercises that I've actually done because I'm a writer. I spend a lot of time writing and I've created these exercises really to look inward. And I I wish that I could have told myself to be the kind of friend to myself the way I am to other people, to mm-hmm. give them breaks, to be gentle with them. I was so hard on myself unnecessarily. Um, I... Um, have that, you know, that idea of the burnt toast syndrome, where um, when I was a younger woman, um, I would be cooking and if the toast got burnt, I would eat it. You know, I I would take the limited ones and give the best ones to everybody else. So what I do now is either I'll make croutons so I don't waste it or throw it away. Um, I deserve the regular piece of toast just like everybody else.
0: That's a great example.
1: I've also come to realize that expectations are planned disappointments and that um, not to have expectations of other people, even people who know me so well. Like my husband, we've been together for 40 years. Um, I long since stopped saying to myself, doesn't he know what I'm thinking? He should know. I mean, mm-hmm. after all, we've been together forever. No one needs to know what I'm thinking except <laughs> me. Yeah. And if I want something, I, I get it, and I get it for myself. I don't wait to be given. And those are some of the things that I, I experience in through writing that I've shared in my book. Um, also, the idea of uh, priorities. 20 years from now, I ask myself, what's going to be more important, um, a wonderful walk by the beach or cleaning my house? And it's the beach that I'm going to remember and playing with my son when he was little or emptying the dishwasher.
0: Mm, I love that. There seems to be quite a theme of self-care that perhaps before or along the way, it's been very challenging and you've learned some ways. Is that something that you actively prioritize?
1: Every day. And I used to think that self-care was being selfish. Mm. And now I understand it's just taking care of uh, myself. I had a therapist who told me that when his grandmother would cut a chocolate cake, birthday cake that she made for another family member, she'd cut the first piece and she'd put it aside and then she'd cut all the other pieces. The first piece was for herself. And um, I grew up in a household where that, that wasn't the case. And I see how important that is. It's not being selfish, it's just taking care of ourselves. And I think as women in our society where we wear so many different hats and we multitask, it's essential.
0: Amen, absolutely. So as a writer, obviously, language is incredibly important to you. Have you found that how you speak about yourself plays a role in how you feel as far as sufficiency?
1: Well, it's ironic that I have a little problem writing about myself But it's not always easy talking about myself. Having had many interviews, it does get easier, as if I'm almost an out-of-body experience of talking about someone else. But I'm beginning to own the words. And that's a process, too, because in feeling not good enough, there were a lot of things that I couldn't own. People would tell me, your writing is strong, or you're this, or you're that. And I'd say, do they really mean that? So I have to believe that they do, and I'm internalizing it. I
0: love that. Own the words. And you're such a great speaker. Thank you. Uh, And also the writing process. Did you find, in addition to the term replacement child, how did that process affect how you feel about all of this?
1: Wow. It was really a journey, I have to say. Um, It took me probably about two years to write the book. And one, I write, I write a little and then go back and and regress a little and then write a little more. As I'm reading my own writing, it takes me there. And I assume that's wonderful because it's very powerful. Took me another two and a half years to edit the book. And I talked to my students about the iterative process of writing, writing and rewriting and rewriting. But boy, did I walk the walk. Um, This was amazing. But I did learn so much about myself. And when I read some of my writing that I hadn't read in a while I you know the words would catch in my throat and I think wow those words are moving me and at some point I don't even remember writing some of them it was as if it was a spiritual experience
0: beautiful I love that and it's inspiring too to know that it it took quite a while and what kept you going
1: I loved it and whenever I am doing something that I totally believe in that it, it was almost a demand from my soul that I write this uh, that's what kept me going I just didn't stop and at one point I was waiting for a chunk of time to do my writing like the end of a semester summer session when I'm out of school and someone had told me that they knew someone who wrote a book writing 30 minutes every day 20 minutes every day so I set my alarm for four fifteen in the morning mm-hmm. and I would write till <coughs> five and that's how I wrote my book I
0: love that. That's also very inspiring. How have people responded to the book?
1: Very positively. um, More than I ever expected because of the universal theme that they could connect to. And a lot of the mother-daughter issues that I bring up and describe, they can connect so well, more than I ever anticipated. I love it. Which was one of my goals of writing the book, besides Mm -hmm. to set my own soul free, Mm -hmm. that I thought I really feel that I can help other people, especially women.
0: Mm, I love it. And I know you are a lover of quotes as I am, and they're interwoven throughout the book. I'm wondering if there is one quote that especially speaks to you or if you have a favorite. I know it's kind of like choosing, you know, a favorite person, but. Yes.
1: Um, I love this quote by Ursula Le Guin. It is. It is good to have an end to journey towards, but it is the journey that matters in the end. And I love that because it really speaks to the, it's not the journey, but it is the destination. Yes. I
0: actually have that written down here because <clears throat> it, was, it was one that really struck me too. And I thought it really pairs so well with your story. And it's also one that so many of us can, I think, relate to because we do get focused on the these deadlines, finish lines, goals, and and the journey is so powerful and so important. What are your goals moving forward as far as the book and this message?
1: I want to be able to get the book out there as much as possible. And I would love to talk to other people who want to do book clubs, who want to do readings. I would be more than happy to um, go to these clubs and to talk about that, talk about my writing. Um, I'd like to do more writing. I've been writing for Psychology Today and InnerSelf.com, as you had mentioned. So I am getting my writing out there and finding a lot of positive response in that the my authentic voice, which is something I teach my own students, but mm-hmm. it makes me so happy when other people recognize it.
0: Awesome. So and I'd I, like
1: to write another book.
0: Yeah, I could see that. And I know you have a book reading coming up May 20th at 6pm in Manhattan Beach. What yes. Can you tell us about that?
1: It, the bookstore is called Pages a Bookstore. And it's in Manhattan Beach, as you said, six o'clock on May 20th. That's a Saturday. And I'll be doing a book signing and a book reading.
0: Awesome. So if there's one main takeaway that you want to share with listeners and, you know, because this is such a universal theme, what do you hope they get from the story more than
1: anything? I hope that they understand that despite any life's challenges, and believe me, we all walk with something, that we can have wonderfully enriched lives and we don't have to wait for other people in our lives to change uh, we don't have to wait for um, circumstances to change. We can change ourselves from the inside out and live honorable, enriched lives.
0: Beautiful. Remind everyone where they can learn about you and find your book.
1: My website where you can learn about me, um, links to my blog, Psychology Today, and as well as to Amazon for to buy my book is, I'll spell it after I say it, barbaraannjaffe.com. That's B-A-R-B-A-R-A. A-N-N-J-A-F-F-E dot com.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me and for your beautiful book and message. I really
1: appreciate it. Thank you, August, for the opportunity.
0: So I have a very special guest today in addition to Dr. Jaffe. My mom is here. She was sitting in the lobby. She's here from Minnesota, Carolyn. And she's been on the show before. We talked about sex ed and samosas because she grew up in India and had a very interesting Sex Education Experience, and that was super fun. You can find the episode on iTunes or my website. Mom, I wanted to hear, though, what did you think of the episode or the interview? Well, as I was listening to Dr. Jaffe,
2: all these light bulbs started going off in my head. And I realized I'm a replacement child. My mother lost uh, twins, and she was over eight months pregnant. She came down with the German measles. They, had, they were coming back from India on the Queen Mary. And my brother contracted German measles. And my mom was pregnant, and she got the measles. So, of course, back then there was no ultrasound. She didn't know she was having twins. But one of the twins was so deformed, they couldn't even tell the gender. And the other one was a little girl. So 10 months later, here I am. You know, wow. and... I don't think I was the one who ever suffered because I was the replacement child. I think it was my oldest sister.
0: That's so interesting. I knew about the twins, but I didn't realize it was so soon after. Yeah. So how you said it didn't affect you as much. Why were you not? Because I was totally
2: loved. My mother always told me that, well, as my sister reminds me, that I was the sunshine after the rain. Oh. And my sister also reminds me. Since my mother lost twins, I got the love of two, and I was the most spoiled child in our family of five. Did Doctor Jaffe's experience remind you of your sisters? My, it reminded me of my older sister, and because she always competed with me, which and and she always needed, she seemed to need to prove herself, and um, I had a hard time understanding that. And she and she and I are. Of course, we're sisters, but we were born very different personality, very different build. I was only five, three, she was five, eight. She was a tomboy. I was a girly girl. And I think that also probably contributed to some of the her anguish because she was not she she, she enjoyed hunting. <laughs> she enjoyed all these things the guys enjoyed and loved it. Yeah. And I was not interested at all with things like that. And she was always strong and rough and tough. And I was always happy to sit like a little lady sipping a cup of tea.
0: You still are. So,
2: <laughs> but, you know, and I and now I feel I feel badly for my sister because I think of how much they compared us. I also remember when we came back to the States on another furlough my sister had put on a lot of weight and she was in high school here or i think it was ninth grade which is a hard time really hard time and anyway um back then a w had mama burgers papa burgers and baby burgers and i know my dad had took a picture of us and teased the living daylights out of my sister that she had this huge mama platter and I had this little tiny baby burger and compared us. You know, and I think, when I think back to that, I think, oh, how awful. Mm. Yeah. And she did have weight issues for a while. And I'm sure it was she was eating her emotions. So, and I was, I, I know that when we went to India, of course, I had a, a nanny. I had an Aya. Mm-hmm. Because my mother was a nurse and she worked. Yeah. And I was three months old when they t- we went back to India. And my mom handed this little pink bundle to Binu, our ayah, and said, Here, she's yours. And Binu loved me. She just doted on me. I so I, I had India. I was loved by mom. I had mm-hmm. second moms. You know the, how they say you're raised by a village? Well, I literally was raised by an
0: Indian village, <laughs> yeah, you know, you and
2: all the and, and we had a cook. Yeah. He loved me. He called me. He called me little baby, and he called my sister big baby. Oh, wow. there's another. Yeah. You know, when I think back now, all these light bulbs started flashing wow. when I was listening to her talk, and I thought, wow, sometime she and I need to have a good talk. You about hurt feelings, your maybe. Sure, yeah. sure. even after all these years, we can always. And lie. we have. We're both grandmothers now. Mm-hmm. You know, even after all these years, because I feel bad that she felt bad because I was doted on. I really and, of course, I loved it. <laughs> you know, and, but I didn't know anything different. Sure,
0: neither of you did. I mean, no. this was just—it's just, it's just what, how it what was. Happened. Sure, yep. and it was well intended, but it yep. didn't go well in a lot of ways. And yep. wow, that's so interesting.
2: But. um... I had, I, and also my mother, she lost twins. Her two best friends gave birth to healthy twins six weeks and two months after she lost the twins. Oh, wow. So, and plus my mother had three brothers. Mm -hmm. She always wanted girls. And I remember her talking when my sister was born in India. She broke the scale. She was so big. She was over 11 pounds. My mom says she's never seen such a plump baby. She had a roll all around the outside of her head, and she was a big,
0: strong girl, and yeah. that's great. But it wasn't—I mean, now it's still not but, socially acceptable. But then, especially, mom, and
2: she was mom's first daughter. She loved—you know—she was thrilled she had a girl. But she said, and she was so big. And then when I was born, I was the most beautiful little thing, and um, I feel really—I feel guilty, <laughs> you
0: know—you oh, know—thinking,
2: well. you know, wow. You know, I'd never thought of that comparison before.
0: That's so interesting and that you just happened to be here today.
2: Yeah. Isn't that something? Yeah.
0: That yep. is something. Yep.
2: Wow. So uh, I think we need to have
0: a chat. I think so. I think and I so. think maybe she'd like to read Dr. Jeffy's book. I think she or might. Or maybe we should read it together. That's actually a beautiful idea. I think that would be amazing. Um, I have a question from a listener here for Dr. Megan. Okay. And I'd love to hear you weigh in on this as well because you now have many, many grandchildren. And we talked about sex ed last time. And this relates to it. But its I think it's a really important question and one that a lot of parents can probably relate to. Patricia wrote this, I was born in a very sex-negative household and school system. I'm now a parent myself and want to make a difference In the experience for my girls, twin toddlers at the moment, speaking of twins, one of them (laughs) asked about her private parts recently, and I wanted to encourage and respect her curiosity. My husband sees things differently and shunned her for asking such questions immediately. We have since had heated debates about what will teach them or not teach them. I'd love to hear your thoughts as this has become a point of tension. More importantly, we both want to raise confident, healthy girls. Thank you so much, Patricia. Thank you for this question, Patricia. Here is what Dr. Megan had to say.
3: Patricia, thank you so much for this question. Um, you know, I just want to start with the fact that you can certainly appreciate, I imagine, um, what was the impact and effect of having yourself been raised in a sex-negative household and school system. Because so often the messages we get about sex and sexuality, they really start in a sense, from the cradle. And as, you know, we are young toddlers and curious and normal, you know, we, we're just curious about our bodies and what feels good. Um, and so when, you know, our hands might be slapped or we're told, um, you know, anything around the sense of there's something wrong or bad in those actions, you know, that does induce a feeling of shame because, you know, Kids, we put our sort of adult mindset on top of thinking, you know, what is it we imagine our kids are experiencing or thinking? And the reality is they're just being kids. They're just sort of, um, again, noticing and wanting to engage their world. And so, you know, I think it's important to talk to your husband of, you know, did he even notice whenever whatever he said or did that induced shame? Did he see the experience of that on their face or in their body? What was that like for him? You know, what were the messages he got or didn't get around sex and sexuality what way did that impact him sort of in his adult self and exploration? And, you know, can you get on the same page? Um, because I'm sort of from the um, school of thought that, you know, our vulva, our vagina, our clitoris, these are just parts of our anatomy, no different than, say, our nose or our ears. And yet, clearly, there's something so taboo that we have to have, like, countless words, it seems, for the word vagina. In fact, I went to Urban Dictionary and there were over 400 words, you know, everything from down there, flower, bird's nest, beaver, yoni. Imagine another 300 plus, right? So how or why is it we have so many names? And I think it's because for some reason, we just haven't um, recognized that just... You know, as a psycho psychologist, we always talk about just naming things. Name it for what it is and take any other additional meaning outside of that because I think that's where we are um, sort of adding our own biases or our own narratives or stories versus letting our kids just – name it for what it is, and explore and figure it out for themselves, obviously with the right parameters. So there's two books that I want to recommend that I think even will help the conversation with your husband. Um, and then they're meant to be shared with your children. And the first is Amazing You, uh, Getting Smart About Your Private Parts by Gail Saltz, Saltz and Lynn Avril Kravath. And the other is The Care and Keeping of You, the body book for younger girls by American Girl. I think having these two reference points, um, and again, these are picture books, they're age-appropriate, is a great place, again, to start the conversation with your husband and then ultimately with your two girls. And I can't say enough how much I think it's amazing that, you know, you want to give them a different experience than you had growing up. And by just that setting that intention and asking this question, you're already on the path to not handing down that, sense, that same sense of shame. So... I congratulate you, and I'm excited, and as always, can't wait to hear how it goes.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. Wonderful advice, as always. Check her out at greatlifegreatsex.com. She made such good points about you know the many, many terms we have for a vagina and vulva, and actually, a lot of people think that vagina is everything down there. You know, we don't use the terms vulva and clitoris and all of those. And uh, I love that she mentioned those resources which could probably be helpful and also that again being aware and setting this intention is so huge. Mom, what did you what were you taught that private parts are called? I mean down there. Down there.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it was part of the, my part of my age. Um I don't f- feel like I tried not to talk to you kids when you were little. But I didn't volunteer a whole bunch.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: If you had questions, I'd answer. Yeah. But um, and I guess that's that's how I left it.
0: Yeah. Do you, have you heard anything from, because you have so many grandkids, did they yeah. ask you questions <laughs> about
2: body parts? And- well, actually, we have Isabel who's five and her brother Mark is three. And they they were having a bath the other night, and they like to just stroke each other, down there, just to see what it is. And of course, her, their parents are both psychologists. <laughs> I wonder if they know you're sharing this. <laughs> well, no, I just thought it was. I thought it was so cute. I mean, they didn't.
0: No, they didn't totally make any, Yeah, they yeah. didn't make any
2: big issue over it. Yeah, they did You know, it was, and it was very. It Normal. was just inquisitive.
0: That's really good. Yeah, they are. Being school psychologists and just great people who are very, you know, they care they're a lot of the kids. Open, they're very open. Yeah, they're very open. Yeah, I'm not surprised that they didn't shame them. But it's it's interesting because they have different parts. So they're fascinated. They're like, "What is that? It looks yep. so different from mine, and it's yep. normal." And I love that they didn't shame them. No,
2: for that. they didn't shame them at all. But that was the first time because they've been trying to decide when it is that little girls and boys should probably start taking separate baths. Oh, yeah, that could be. So, and they're they're in the process of deciding that. Mm-hmm. They are expecting their third child now. So, I don't know. Yeah. And also, Isabel will be starting um, kindergarten. And so, who knows? Maybe she'll want to start taking showers by herself, you know? And it just will transition by itself. Yeah. So, I think sometimes we make too big of an issue of stuff, and kids are satisfied with a very simple answer. Yeah. They're much more, my experience has been with more than one child in the bathtub is when somebody has a BM in the tub and something goes floating by and they just are freaked out.
0: I could see that so, being a little freaky. Yes,
2: I mean poop is natural. Uh, yes, it is. But you know that could be freaky. But uh, you know, and as a parent, I find it very humorous.
0: Uh, I bet you do. You <laughs> seem to find a lot of humor now that they're the grandkids too. Yeah. Oh yes. And I love having parents in here because I know a lot of listeners have kids, and I, you know, I can tell you how to toss a ball for a dog, but I don't. Well, really... we
2: had do- we had one son, but our son took baths with his older sister, mm-hmm. and then his younger sister. We we didn't keep them apart. Yeah, you know? yeah. Just it's normalize. just natural, you know? Totally, totally. And whether they're girl or boy, they take baths together. Yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes in other countries, people aren't as hung up.
0: It's true. Yeah, we that, have a lot more. That's been my experience mm-hmm. anyway. No, I agree. Yeah, when the more open-minded that we are about these things and the more accepting, the less stigma there is, the less shame, well, like, and the fewer problems. Dr. Megan said it's like...
2: Your nose, your eyes, it's part of who
0: you are. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful part, no matter what it looks like, no matter what shape it is. And all
2: of us look different in every way. Yes. Including down there. (laughs) Including down there.
0: (laughs) Yes. How do you say girl boner in Hindi? Oh, I have no idea. Okay, that's your homework. Okay, thank you. Thank you for joining me, Mom. Oh, it's Dad. (laughs) Oh, boy. Maybe we're going to have him on the show next time. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Blush fest for him, I mean. Uh, uh, (laughs) It'd be fun, though. He's really supportive, and I so appreciate both of you guys supporting my work. So thank you, Mama. I'm glad you do what you do. And everybody, I hope you will check out something awesome Dr. Megan is doing, the Whole Woman Summit. It is starting on March 27th. It's all about things that matter to women, mind, body, spirit, work, relationships, and justice. There are some incredible emerging speakers, and they have diverse backgrounds, incredible stories to share. And Dr. Megan specifically wanted to invite Girl Boner listeners. She would love anyone who's interested to check it out and register. You can learn more at thewholewoman.com forward slash schedule dash of dash sessions or the whole forward slash registration. If you are enjoying girl boner radio, thank you so much. If you're listening, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes. If you haven't and leave a simple review while you're there for extras and a whole lot more, visit my website, augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for supporting this show. Have a beautiful girl boner embracing week.